baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. This time on Vet Story. Dropped off his son at the University of Denver on his first day of college, September 7th of last year. Three days later, he got news that no parent wants to hear. All started um, with our loss of our son, Jonathan, on September 7th last year, so it's almost a year now. It is the most complex problem I have ever faced. So you can't allow bitterness or, or, or disgust or anger to creep into your approach to your loved one at all because they are not themselves. And if you immediately take them away, they'll, they'll go find other drugs that are much more harmful. You are substituting one drug for another. You're substituting a drug that will not kill you. If we only knew now what we knew back then, we'd probably still have our son with us. Welcome to another episode of Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs, and uh, joined by my colleague and the guy that sits right across from me every day, Matt Saintsing. How's it going? Well, I got to say, it was interesting when you told me what you were working on last week, because it was like, you're a new colleague of mine I've known for about a year, but you actually flashed back to my past, stationed aboard the aircraft carrier John C. Stennis, and there I was in Norfolk, Virginia, serving under the command of Captain James Winnefeld who at the time was only a captain, went on to become the admiral that you most recently talked to, but he was my XO. That's crazy. I didn't even know that when I set up the interview. Like, it's kind of, right? I kind of let it slip, and you're like, that's my former XO. I'm like, oh, man. And so. once I saw the picture, I was like, you know, convinced. It's not just the same name. No, my XO went on to become an admiral, and yeah. as you discovered, went on to, he did a couple other jobs, too, that were pretty noteworthy. Uh, he was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and so for people who don't know that Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the senior military officer in the United States military. He was second to that. So the second highest ranking officer in the U.S. military. Uh, Hot (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. And as I later learned uh, through Facebook, uh, he was also in Top Gun. He was one of the pilots. uh, That's right. Yeah. You told me that, and I think that's hilarious. Yeah, Yeah. he was one of the guys rocking the Russian MiGs. But while that's all good, you discovered... A truly heartfelt story and something that I think kind of moved both of us when we got into doing it. Um, I love the writing in the piece. Thank you. But uh, share with me kind of the 30,000 foot view of what his mission is now. So Admiral, retired Navy Admiral James Winnefeld dropped off his son at the University of Denver on his first day of college, September 7th of last year. Three days later, he got news that no parent wants to hear that his son was found dead from an apparent overdose. His son died from a fentanyl-laced heroin overdose. Mm. Jonathan was already in recovery for a year when the Admiral dropped his son off at the University of Denver, right? Three days later, relapsed, he was killed. 
Wow. So as a four-star admiral, you expect him to roll up his sleeves and get to work. Mm-hmm. A month and a half after his son was found dead, he already had a nonprofit group called The Safe Project. Well, The Safe Project all started with our loss of our son, Jonathan, on September 7th last year, so it's almost a year now. And we were sitting there and receiving a lot of um, condolence messages from people who were asking whether they should send flowers or whether they could donate to a cause that we would support. And we, my wife and I sort of looked at each other and decided that, you know, with um, 37 years in the military, knowing how to get things done, a pretty good network of, of friends um, uh, that we've developed since I retired, that we would actually feel pretty bad if we didn't uh, actually um, try to start our own organization to lend a hand uh, along with a number of other organizations that are trying to reverse the opioid epidemic. 72,000 people alone last year died from overdoses. 72,000. That's about 14,000 more people that died during the entire span of the, of the Vietnam War. So Jonathan was already a year in recovery. He was, an, he was a 19-year-old freshman. He took the year off in between his uh, college to get his mental health on track and to, and to be in recovery. He was in recovery. Now, in Denver, I wasn't aware of this, but there are open-air heroin markets where you can just go down to downtown and buy it. And Man. the story that that we heard is that the temptation proved a little too much for Jonathan and went back and bought some heroin. It killed him. Admiral Winnefeld, just as you expect a four-star flag officer to do, he has taken a complete 360 view of this. He talks about the science. He talks about faith-based groups. He talks about social science. He's really trying to make sure less families have to go through what he went through. It is the most complex problem I have ever faced. Um, And uh, complex problems uh, don't lend themselves very well to, you know, hyper simple solutions. Um, and we have structured our organization o- around the, the long lines of what we think the nation needs to do to tackle this epidemic. And it, it is probably no surprise to you that given my military background and a, an extensive um, experience in planning, strategic planning, operational planning, whatever, that some of that might creep into the way we're approaching this problem. And we have chosen six lines of operation that are uh, public awareness, so we can uh, gather more public support for the resources needed to take this thing on and also lower the stigma associated with uh, addiction. Uh, Full spectrum prevention so that we can target the most vulnerable audiences with credible messages and messengers to try to prevent new addicts from coming in. Uh, Prescription medicine, because that's a huge dimension of the genesis of the problem and what's sustaining it. And there, there's a wide spectrum of things that need to be taken on in that uh, line of operation. Law enforcement and medical response, both to uh, try to take on the supply side of this thing, but also to recognize that there is a continuum between um, the, the on-the-scene uh, impact of trying to uh, resuscitate uh, somebody who's going through an overdose and, and in, a, in a continuous warm handoff, getting them into medication-assisted treatment. There is treatment and recovery. Uh, of course, that is um, trying to help with the people who have already fallen into this disease and, and doing our best we can for them. And there's simply not enough treatment available. Uh, and it's not affordable. It's not accessible. So we're trying to help with that. And then finally, family outreach and support. You know, we, we in the military understand the importance of family. It's a family business. And in substance abuse disorder or substance use disorder, uh, families are incredibly important in supporting somebody who's trying to recover. 
So, and you know, that's all about if we only knew now what we knew back then, we'd probably still have our son with us. So that's the lines of operation, and they all roll up into two major thrusts, one that we call safe communities and the other we call safe campuses, and we're doing a lot on each of those areas, having those six lines of operation feed into those two main thrusts. What are we doing right in this country, and where do we need to improve? Do you have any case studies, or or are there any parts of the country where where you say, hey, look, Nashua and New Hampshire is really killing it, and Charleston, West Virginia really needs some help in some areas? Well, um, that gets into um, a really interesting discussion of safe communities and safe campuses, which are the two main thrusts that we're talking about. Uh, There are communities out there who have stood up and decided to take this epidemic on in their communities. And what we've gone out and done is is try to find the best practices uh, from within each of those communities. And they conveniently are binable into our six lines of operation. And we're finding a lot of really interesting things that communities are doing None of them are doing it all. Mm. Uh, A few of them are starting to sort of turn the tide on this thing, uh, at least leveling off the number of overdose deaths, in some cases actually decreasing them. But it's, it's very few, lots more work to be done in that regard. But we're gathering all those lessons learned, plus what we've learned ourselves. And we're, we're putting together a, a package uh, where we can now go out into a community that is willing to take on the epidemic and first show them who all their stakeholders are, because they may not realize how many important stakeholders they have in their community. Second, show them how to do a landscape survey so they can actually understand their own community's dimensions of the epidemic uh, so they know how to take it on. And then finally, give them a great menu from which to select what works best for them in taking on the epidemic. And we're very careful in that regard to not try to tell a community what to do. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to have all the options available so they can design their own program. So we're, we have, we've, we've just sort of finished the work of gathering all that together and packaging it. And now we're just beginning to go out into communities and try to help them take the epidemic on. And we've gotten a few communities that are very excited about having us help them. On the campus side, which is very interesting to us because that's where we lost our son, there is a a surprisingly broad spectrum of how uh, college and university campuses have decided to take on collegiate recovery. Some uh, colleges and universities are best practices. I mean, absolute shining stars. Uh, Texas Tech, Baylor University, Rutgers, a few others are exceptional. There are others that are doing nothing, literally nothing. Uh, partly because of stigma. They don't want parents of high schoolers touring their campuses mm. to see anything that suggests there might be a drug problem on their campuses, when in fact there's a drug problem on every campus. Yeah. And then there are a lot of colleges and universities sort of somewhere in the middle. And our goal is to sort of raise all boats to try to, to help with that. And we've, we've had a, a couple of success stories. There's a, a, a university that, that we've been working closely with that is actually starting a collegiate recovery program this year, and we think it's going to be a good one. It's the, it's the University of Denver where we lost our son. Oh, wow. And they, they had no program, and I'm not at all um, pejorative about that because there are a lot of campuses that don't have programs. And we, we have urged them, and on their own, they also came to this conclusion, and they are actually standing up, uh, and we're very proud of the fact that they are, they're going to um, take this thing on. The way we've chosen to approach the campus problem is by partnering with a great organization uh, known as the Association of Recovery and Higher Education, a terrific group that we're closely partnering with, uh, combining our resources uh, to uh, address you know, all campuses that we can get our hands on to try to improve this. And one of the things that we are doing 
is starting a, a um, recovery leadership program for students who are in recovery on many of these various campuses. And we're going to do it region by region. Our, our first um, recovery academy is, I believe, in October here in Washington, D.C., for sort of Atlantic Coast colleges and universities where uh, students in recovery can come and learn about leadership and how they can help other kids on their campus. And it's, a, it's actually a year-long program, not just a one-weekend thing, where mm. they will take a community service project on their campus to try to help with recovery efforts. You know, when families drop off their kids for the first day of college, they don't want to do campus tours and see, oh, my God, they're talking about addiction and recovery. Uh, it's not, not my kid syndrome, right? But, right. If, but if it can happen to someone who is a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it can happen to anyone. And think about all the advantages Admiral Winnefeld's family did. He was in the best school. This kid was in the best schools, had the best SAT scores, had all these institutional advantages. And sure. Jonathan still passed from, from drug addiction. You and I both it, personally know people that it, have fallen by the wayside and that either didn't achieve everything they could have in life because the drugs got in the way, temptation got in the way, their demons got them. And now as veterans, I think we both can say, you know, unequivocally, we know a few people that that ended up with too many damn pills in their daily regimen. Uh, and More than a few. Screwed them. I mean, yeah. went off the rails to the point where, you know, if they didn't die, they certainly did not max out life and are probably to this day in a bad place because of the devil's hand they were dealt. It, it is this is disease addiction. It is not racist. It's not sexist. It'll, it, it will attack the richest and the poorest, the, the people who have the most and the people who have the least and everyone in between. And this is something that he's realized that he's realizing and he wants other people to realize. There are probably five reasons why camp, why, why parents should care whether a campus has a recovery program. The first is that when they send their, their child off to that campus, they may not know that, the, that their child actually needs help. Yeah. Because <clears throat> addicts are very, very clever at hiding these things. Uh, the second reason is that they may develop a problem while they're there. Um, there are three pathways into addiction. One is, you know, they may get injured and get overprescribed, or they may have their wisdom teeth out and get overprescribed and fall into addiction that way. Or they may, you know, 40% of college students entering uh, school uh, have some sort of uh, anxiety or depression or whatever, and that can easily be aggravated by the stress of academics and the like, and they can end up self-medicating. And then the third one is, as you alluded, is is probably the least likely, but still there is the party path. You know, do this stuff enough, you're gonna you're gonna get addicted to it. So, so that's you know, so that uh, your your young one can get um, into this problem while they're there. The third reason is even if your young if your child doesn't get into this problem, somebody they know might. And your your child may save a life by actually trying to encourage a friend to go into a program like this. A fourth reason is it's an indicator to parents of whether the college actually cares about their kids. And then a fifth reason is if the kids really see a visible recovery program on their campus and and lowered stigma of addiction, then they're when they graduate, they're going to become better citizens uh, and and add to a population in the U.S. that gets it and and doesn't stigmatize this disease. Lastly, there was a chemical component to this too was he recommending a certain drug or or i saw on the facebook thread people talking about a drug that could counteract the effects or the addictive effects of the opiates yeah so we what the big the big one now is called narcan the cops have it on mm-hmm. them um if it, it's where it will reverse 
what's happening in an, in an overdose if someone's going through it, that you inject it, someone with Narcan, you, you get it in their system, and it can literally save their life. But what Adam Winnefeld was, Admiral Winnefeld was talking about is medication-assisted recovery. I'll just give you an example of why this is so important. Uh, the most dangerous time for someone um, who is in recovery is when they, when they leave an inpatient treatment facility and their opioid receptors have been reset. Um, they, they were previously saturated when somebody was deep in addiction and the body could tolerate a high dose. Mm. Of and when those, those receptors are what control respiration. And when they're reset, if you use the same dose of the drug when you relapse that you used when you were deep in addiction, there's a very good chance that you will kill yourself with an overdose because those, those opioid receptors now get totally saturated quickly and it suppresses your consciousness and, and you stop breathing. Wow, I never even knew that. that, that yeah. That's so, so crazy. That, yeah, so families have to be really, really vigilant, especially in those first few months when somebody comes out um, uh, and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and then the, the, the other thing I would tell families is um, we, we've really researched this. We've, we've talked to the, most, the smartest people we can. We've looked at the numbers. We've looked at the statistics. And an abstinence-based program is very unlikely to be successful. Uh, you, have, you, you just about have to use some kind of medication-assisted treatment uh, if you're going to survive this, which is not to say you don't need counseling and help, but you have to have the medication-assisted treatment. And there are two ways, uh, the, the two important aspects of that. Uh, one is think of it as diabetes, where doctor gives you insulin to save you, to keep your blood sugar under control, but also gives you counseling so that you change your lifestyle. Mm. Uh, that's what medication-assisted treatment is all about. The other thing is you'll hear there's a stigma associated with that where people will say, you know, you're just substituting one drug for another. Yeah. Well, that's in fact true. You are substituting one drug for another. You're substituting a drug that will not kill you, Right. that will keep you alive for a drug that can very easily kill you. I'll take that bargain any day, and I would have taken it with my son in a heartbeat. And what would you say to other people who have loved ones that are struggling with addiction or are tempted in their recovery to to stay in recovery? Well, I would first say that um, you have to understand that while your loved one is, is deep in addiction, they are not themselves. And you have to understand that. So you can't allow bitterness or, or, or disgust or anger to creep into your approach to your loved one at all because they are not themselves. The second thing is to not allow hope to be a strategy. Mm. You have to be very firm. You have to be determined. You, you have to understand that these people can be very deceptive. Uh, and you just have to, to stay with it and stay with it and, and give them a lot of love, but very tough love, very firm love, and, uh, and hang in there with them. Great reporting, Matt. No surprise uh, that as a vet, he's willing to roll up his sleeves, kick some ass, and try to do something about this. He says if, that, if one family is saved, it's all worth it. When you get an email from somebody 
that says, you know, I'm sitting here in a hospital emergency room with my 14-year-old son who is addicted to opioids, and we have decided to take this program or this problem on forcefully and get him into inpatient treatment. And the reason we're here is because we read your stuff. You know, that when you read that, you go, okay, I can go for another week uh, doing this. One more time, the name of the organization. The SAFE Project, S-A-F-E. Great reporting, Matt. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks a lot. Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.